0: Greetings from the humongous.
1: Roads?
0: Where we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Joe, no time for love. Hey, hey, Sal, how come you the brothers on the wall
1: here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to
0: do. You are nothing but
1: unorganized, revastic pieces of amphibian shit. Society may be what I am. That's bullshit.
0: Yeah, that's simply the way they talk
1: here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word.
0: What did the pajamas look saying? like? I don't know. They were jammies they had yodas and shit on them there's a fine line between stupid and clever he sends one of yours to the hospital you send one of his to the morgue bitch they should all right we're back film driven i'm andre shane
1: i'm steve haskin
0: and uh today steve uh well you know we we always have been trying to come up with interesting things to do about the 80s. And one of the things that I think both of us came up early on is what happened to the new Hollywood heroes of the 70s in the 80s? Because the 80s did have such a massive kind of sea change in cinematic attitude, shall we say. And we talked about it in our podcast on uh, kind of the bigger... Uh, crowd pleasing aspects of the Hollywood cinema in the sure. 80s. And here, of course, we have these auteurs that were so huge in the 70s. And, uh, and here's the 80s, a whole new landscape for them to play in. And how did they do? So, this is what we're going to talk about today, Steve. And, uh, interesting topic. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on it generally?
1: Well, it's, you know, so the 70s in Hollywood, these directors are, uh, they're legends. Like, everybody talks about this golden age of um, directors like Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Spielberg getting his start, uh, to lesser extent Peter Bogdanovich, a little bit of Altman. You know, there's there's documentaries about these guys. There's books. They're held up as, like, you know, on the level of the Beatles or something to uh, cinema nerds. And But the thing is, in the 80s, right, not only did none of these guys die, but they weren't even all that old. Like uh, most of them were in their 40s. You know, they continued to work. So what happened with them? And one of the things that was interesting is that for most of these guys, um, with the possible exception of Scorsese, um, they weren't quite – they hadn't quite achieved that legend status that they have today or even in the 90s. So they still had to produce hits, Like, uh, their movies were expected to make money, and if they made movies that weren't making money, there was no guarantee they were going to get to make another one. So all these directors navigated the 80s to various degrees of success, where you'll see, you know, there's uh, one end, you got Spielberg, who just, at least in financial terms, just dominated the 80s. And uh, then you have guys like Bogdanovich and Coppola, who seem to really kind of struggle, that uh, none of their projects seem to... um, or at least most of their projects, didn't make a lot of money. They seemed to have trouble getting work. And uh, then you got guys like kind of in the middle, like Scorsese, who uh, a little up, a little down, but certainly had some creative peaks. So we're just kind of checking in on these uh, guys in the 70s, seeing how they did in the 80s, what kind of work they produced. And um, maybe at the end of it we, we discuss we could uh, vote who had the best decade. Who won the 80s out of the 70s directors?
0: Yeah, that's uh that's a good one. I'm I'm excited. I have some ideas and uh we'll talk about them and I think uh I think I the, the interesting thing the person you didn't mention in this thing and we talked about even mentioning Woody Allen was a person that kind of dropped in my mind because Woody Allen generally is not lumped in with uh you know with these Auteurs of the seventies until the late seventies, because the early seventies for Woody Allen was kind of silly comedies like Take the Money and Run and Bananas and uh, Sleeper. I don't think anybody thought of him as a serious filmmaker. And then towards the end of the decade, starting specifically with Annie Hall and then moving to Manhattan, all of a sudden Woody Allen is starting to play in the sandbox of the auteurs, and certainly starts. Viewing himself as an auteur, and uh, he had a pretty phenomenal eighties, if you if you think about it. Like he started, well, I mean, first of all, Woody Allen put out more movies than the other the other guys did generally, right? Woody Allen has start, uh, fell into this a film a year kind of a pattern, right? He made made a movie every year, and um, that's uh, that was kind of his pattern. Well, even until this, this very day and the eighties is an interesting time for him because he's coming off arguably one of his biggest artistic achievements in 79, which is Manhattan and his first film of the decade is Stardust Memories. Stardust Memories is very much a, a riff on Federico Fellini's eight and a half, which deals with sort of the creative process of the director kind of blended with his uh, love life uh, situations at the time. And and that's what Stardust Memories is. And Stardust Memories is a movie I really like a lot, but it is definitely Woody Allen kind of riffing on other filmmakers, right? Uh, but then things get kind of interesting with Woody Allen. Like, he does a movie called Zelig, which is a basically a mockumentary but this is an incredibly self-referential kind of postmodern film very artistic and holds up remarkably well if you yeah
1: it becomes like a, a a touchstone going forward people just refer to other people in real life as a zelig like figure
0: absolutely absolutely again it, it, it gets into the zeitgeist and that's a that's a big accomplishment right there. But Zelig, the movie itself uh, plays great now, and and the concept works remarkably well. And then followed by Broadway Danny Rose, which is which is in the comedy genre definitely, and 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 tries to be as funny as possible, fairly successfully, I'd say. Uh, but then the next film, you got Purple Rose of Cairo. Again, you have this very self-referential. Postmodernist film about how we interact and connect with cinema directly in a very direct fashion. I mean, that film has a movie character literally walking off the screen and having a relationship with a with a member of the audience, with one of his own fans, a character, not an actor, an actual character. So um, that's a very interesting film and very kind of artistically challenging in a way even though the movie is very light lightweight and then that's followed by Hannah and Her Sisters which Steve is one of my favorite Woody Allen movies uh probably number one or number two possibly uh but uh excellent film that really encapsulates all Woody Allen's strengths as a filmmaker it's funny it's thought-provoking, it's philosophical, it flows great, it has great performances, great characters. I love Hannah and Her Sisters. Everything just works beautifully in that movie. And um, that's sort of the pinnacle of his 80s output. Well, well I, yeah,
1: Hannah and Her Sisters are very good. I, yeah, I'm not going to yell at you about your choice of Hannah and Her Sisters, but I will say my choice for my favorite maybe my favorite woody allen movie at all to jump ahead a little bit is 1989's crimes and misdemeanors which uh you know we we've talked about this yes. before that uh woody allen is a guy who uh i once i Not to say it's as good as Shakespeare, but similar to Shakespeare, that Woody Allen makes comedies, which sometimes have drama in them, and he makes dramas that sometimes have comedy in them. But so those are kind of his two main modes. And in the Woody Allen drama movies, uh, for me, Crimes and Misdemeanors is the best. Uh, It's just the best written. It's the best
0: directed. uh, It's really good. So... I completely agree. Crimes and Misdemeanors at the End of the Day may end up being his best film. Uh, it's it 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 may be certainly his most philosophically most profound film. It's a film that blends drama and comedy. Uh and uh what can you say? It's uh it it just works. It it's got great performances, it's beautifully written. It's just a, it's it's just a fantastic film. I completely agree with you. And Again, that one falls into my one or one or two first or second, I should say, favorite Woody Allen movie of all yeah, time. Yeah,
1: ne- ne- I mean, neither one of us are like making some strong declaration that Hannah and her sister sucks or that Crimes and Misdemeanors is terrible. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know, I know. It's a, we we are we're definitely in line with generally the critical yeah. reaction to Woody Allen. And I uh, mean. What's,
1: I will say one of the things about Woody Allen that it started a little bit in the 70s, but a trend that he really picked up in the 80s and into the 90s that I always kind of made fun of him for is that Woody Allen would hire these really great cinematographers, but then all he would have them do was shoot the interior of like Upper upper West Side apartment buildings, maybe occasional street scene. So, uh, I don't, I mean, it uh, felt like if you hired Roger Deakins to make like, what are you doing with him? Oh, that's great. Roger Deakins is great. Like, yeah, we're going to make clerks. I'm just going to have him light this video yeah. store. You know, you, oh, you did a lot of tracking shot. No, no, pretty, uh, pretty static camera, occasional pans. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, not that, you know, those scenes need to be lit as well, but I always kind of laugh that like why Woody Allen would, spend the effort and money on these like great cinematographers just to have them dick around with you know some hallway of a condo
0: yeah i think you could make a case for that and and i mean there's definite exceptions uh with uh gordon willis obviously in manhattan and and uh yes that is and, an exception you know it it you know woody allen likes to work uh, in wide shots and and i think uh that's uh that I think he somewhat as a director lets his cinematographers down in working in that uh, in that way but uh but when the movies work, they work remarkably well and the movie the two movies we just mentioned specifically uh, crimes and misdemeanors and Hannah and her sisters are both fantastic and and to me it's an interesting like like t- talking about his career in the eighties is interesting to me in this context, because it seems like Woody Allen came to the forefront as an auteur. In other words, the eighties were his flowering as a director. Uh, like he became as good as he ever got in the eighties. And I think to some extent you could make that case for a couple of the other guys we're talking about. Um, and, um, I don't know. Scorsese is an interesting example of that. Like, Scorsese, obviously people are going to say, well, you know, what's the greatest Scorsese movie, possibly Taxi Driver, right? But a second greatest film, at the very least, is Raging Bull, which came out in 1980 and uh, sort of saw the beginning of the decade for Martin Scorsese. So you could certainly make a case for Scorsese as well as Woody Allen, that the 80s saw their flowering as an artist, which is not very often talked about, Steve.
1: Well, okay, so Uh, we we want to talk about Scorsese. Marty just had a birthday. We can go through uh, some of his works in the 80s. I I guess I would disagree with the idea that the 80s are where he really flowered because while he did strong work in the 80s, um, almost none of my favorite Scorsese movies were in the 80s. Uh, he, They were either before or after. Now, that said, Scorsese began the decade. 1980 was Raging Bull. And then 1990, which, again, either the end of the 80s or the end of the 90s, was Goodfellas, which is my favorite Scorsese movie. So, I mean, that's... Right there is a pretty badass bookend to your decade. You know, it's sure. uh, like none yeah, of the yeah. movies we, none of the people we're going to discuss today, like hit any sort of masterpieces on that level, especially 10 years apart. But in the middle there, Scorsese was kind of interesting. Like, he is one of these guys I'm talking about where. You know, uh, Raging Bull, I think, was kind of a modest success financially. It was certainly a gigantic success critically. Like, you know, De Niro won an Oscar. I think it won an editing Oscar. It was nominated for a lot of stuff. Um, really cemented his reputation as, like, you know, one of the guys, like a great director. But then after that, yes. um, he had a couple movies in a row that um, he had a movie he tried to make and a couple movies they did make that were all... Uh, between a bomb and a disappointment uh financially and he kind of struggled a little bit so after the high of raging bull like what's he gonna do next and he did uh king of comedy uh a very abrupt change in tone even though it had the same good old robert de niro and uh, <laughs> what like their fifth movie together or something uh i mean still yes. in the pocket it's kind of the last one in their streak of like You know, there's Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, all those together. And King of Comedy is a really weird film. It's a movie that is talked about a lot, but if you've never seen it, um, it's going for a really strange kind of satirical tone. Um, You know, people talk about how it's supposed to be creepy, a movie about stalking. Last year's Joker obviously owed a lot of debts to King of Comedy, but Joker took it way more, way more seriously than uh king comedy does like the main character rupert pumpkin which is a great name because you just want to say pumpkin <laughs> all the time and it's not you know um but he's pathetic uh he's a pathetic character who uh his attempts to get in touch with his idol this talk show host jerry jerry lawyer is that lawyer i know it's played by jerry lewis but uh that the host is also named jerry and I don't know. To me, Andre, I don't know what you feel about King Comedy, but I just feel a couple aspects of it just didn't really work. Like, it it can never quite tell if it wants to be a black comedy, or if it wants to be a satire, or if it wants to be, like, a creepy tale of kidnapping. It just never quite nails what exactly it is, so therefore it's never really any of them. And uh, I also say, oh, this is a hot take, but... I feel like de niro's really miscast in this and it this project was de niro's idea he's the one who pressured scorsese to do it he actually wanted him to do it in the late 70s he didn't go for it Changed his mind a little later and de niro gives a good performance i mean he's a really good actor he commits to trying to be pathetic and you know it's it's a good performance but i just feel the overall movie would have worked better with somebody else
0: Mm, that is a hot take. Uh, it's it, you know it's interesting that you say that because I'm not I'm not a giant fan of the King of Comedy and I'll I'll give you a hot take right now. I think Joker is a better film than King of Comedy. How about that, Steve? That's interesting. I uh, yeah I, I think it's a more consistent film. I think it's a film that succeeds. It's what it's trying to do more than King of Comedy does, much more. I mean, I, I am totally with you. I think King of Comedy kind of fails. Uh, it's not creepy. It's not suspenseful. It's not funny. Uh, so what is it exactly? And uh, I think it's a misstep for Scorsese. Uh, again, people certainly can relate to some aspects of the film, and I can, and can relate to some aspects of the characters in the film. But for the most part, everybody in the film is kind of an asshole, Uh there's no likable characters in the movie and um there's like this weird thing that uh, jerry lewis's character he, actually he gives my the fa- my favorite performance in the film uh but it's interesting that how much more threatening jerry lewis is than the people that are kidnapping and threatening his life in that film right it's yeah kind of, and kind of funny almost
1: yeah, Jerry Lewis certainly with, when he seems angry in this movie is kind of terrifying. But that's uh, p- part of the problem with the tone is that, you know, De Niro, especially young De Niro, you know, had an air of threat and menace about him just naturally. But if you watch the movie, like the only thing threatening about Rupert Pupkin is that he's played by Robert De Niro. Like, even when he's actively committing a crime, it's kind of a bumbling crime, and actually my favorite joke in the entire movie is when they go to kidnap Jerry, you know, they get out of the car to abduct him on the street, and De Niro instantly drops his gun and has to <laughs> kind of pick it up off the street, like, they, just such a bumbling kidnapping attempt, and like, I wanted more of that kind of tone, <laughs> of just these two morons try to commit a crime, but... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So yeah. King of Comedy, but I, I guess it's okay to move on from that. So then he wanted to make The Last Temptation of Christ, and uh, which was a book Barbara Hershey gave him back in the early 70s. Uh, it's a very philosophical novel. I've actually read the novel, Andre. I don't know if you had, but um, the novel's interesting. It uh, really presents the idea of the story of Jesus that right before Jesus died is kind of a last little little temptation from the devil. That the devil tempts Jesus with the ultimate kind of carrot of like, well, what if you could just have a normal life? What if you didn't have to sacrifice all this stuff? What if you could get married and have kids and just have a house and just be like a dude? And um, the movie is very controversial because, especially for people who haven't read it, uh, a lot of Christians got mad that it was implying that Jesus went around having sex all the time. but. Again, if you actually read the novel, it's just what I said. It's, uh, it's kind of like a, a philosophical argument, which even in the novel they have Jesus decides, no, he's going to just continue on the path of the standard Christian story. But anyway, it's an interesting novel. And Scorsese, it really – he felt a deep connection to it and wanted to make the movie and uh, actually had financing secured. But then when – before they rolled cameras, uh, a lot of uh, protests – and people writing the studio angry letters, and they just pulled the funding for it. It didn't happen. Kind of broke his heart. And uh, so he was a little depressed for a while, but regrouped and made a movie I know you're quite fond of, a kind of quick nighttime New York comedy after hours.
0: After Hours. I love After Hours, Steve. You see, to me, After Hours does everything the king of comedy did not do, which is it got that perfect tone. And it's a small movie. It's a low-budget movie. It feels like kind of a gonzo thing that young people would shoot at night. Uh, I feel like you and I could have made After Hours, you know, if we really, really got lucky. But uh, uh After Hours is is. It's it's just a fun movie. It's sort of the Odyssey retold uh, within this kind of a journey, this bizarre, surreal journey this one one character has uh, throughout New York. And uh, it's interesting. It's fun. It's got a lot of weird characters. It's non, non-linear, really. It's kind of episodic. It goes from one adventure to another, like the Odyssey itself. And... Uh, it just works it works it's small it's not trying to change the world and uh it's very effective two more people more people should see that film in my opinion i think that's that's one of his least seen movies and i think it deserves a better reputation than it has uh, i will but, say yeah.
1: uh i know you and i have talked about this off pod but uh after hours is one of those movies that you ever have a movie under it has a has a deal breaking thing in it for you Like so, you know, like maybe you love dogs and the movie kills a dog, and you're like, I'm out of this, I'm out on the rest of this movie, the dog Uh died. uh So After Hours has a weird plot hole that normally I can forgive plot holes, but it's always bugged me. And that the whole concept of After Hours is this guy, he gets you know, he lives in Manhattan, and he lives on kind of the upper I forget exactly, but you know, he lives on the higher numbered streets of Manhattan. And in the movie He's trapped down in the lower number streets, and the subway's closed. And the subway's going to be closed all night, and he doesn't have any money. So he's like, well, I guess I'm stuck here until the subway opens at 6 a.m. But the problem is the geography of where this guy is is if he just started walking, he would be at his apartment in about 90 minutes. (laughs) So the entire movie is based on the premise that this man 90 minutes away from his apartment is stuck somewhere for like – Five hours, so it's really (laughs) weird to me. It's it's especially weird to me that Scorsese, you know, arguably the most New York of all directors, (laughs) would have this movie. But if you get past that, you can enjoy it. Like you said, it's a very well done movie. You just have to ignore the uh, the Manhattan geography.
0: Yeah, I I see what you're saying. I, I you know I think there's enough stuff happening that kind of draws this guy in to the point where he does not want to take the walking option to uh, back home. I, I, I think I could get past that particular plot hole, because he does you know, like finding an actual viable route home outside of walking uh, becomes such an yeah. obsession. For that
1: well, it's, I mean, if if he just started walking it might be a uh, less exciting movie, too. <laughs> It'd
0: be called walking after
1: That's hours. right, yeah. Uh,
0: and yes, it would be very, very dull, but... Uh, but uh, the movie is fun. I really like it. And I th- I thought it kind of, it was a good good way for Scorsese to refuel a little bit. But, of course, from an economic standpoint, After Hours was a complete bomb. I mean, I don't think anybody saw that movie when it came out. And the people that did, I don't think, gave that much of a shit about it. Uh, so it was not a great career move for Marty and no. uh, i think after after that uh that film he kind of had to uh uh put himself out for rent essentially and uh that's exactly what he ended up doing uh picking up a uh gun for hired job on a little movie called The Color of Money with Color of uh, Money yeah Mr. and Paul Newman and uh that movie of course was a huge success and got Paul Newman an oscar and was like a it was a big deal.
1: Yeah, big I mean, I think deal. until that point, it was the biggest hit of Scorsese's career.
0: And The Color of Money is, uh, what is it? It's a sequel to The Hustler, so it's got this sort of built-in appeal to, the, to being a sequel, uh, a long-awaited, quote-unquote, you know, I don't think anybody actually asked for the sequel to The Hustler, but they got it anyway, and uh, that that element brought uh, brought with it a certain amount of baggage Mostly good baggage. Like people were like, "Hmm, I wonder what Martin Scorsese will do with a sequel to The Color of Money." I mean, to to, to I wonder what Martin Scorsese will do uh, with a sequel to The Hustler, and um, it turned out pretty good. I like The Color of Money.
1: Yeah, I recently rewatched it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's not super deep, but uh, it's kind of. There's a couple times in his career where Scorsese's essentially seem like work for hire, and. You're struck in those moments of like work for higher Scorsese, you still get a really well directed entertaining movie. Um so it's got all sorts of Scorsese classic touches of, you know, like the fast dollies, the extreme close ups, cut well, you know, same team, Thelma shoemaker, still part of the part of the team for color money. And um everybody's great in it. You know, Newman won the Oscar for the first time, uh, but he does give a good performance. Like it doesn't seem like it's a complete ripoff and uh He's young crew. Yeah. Young Cruz is just a cocky asshole is great. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's
0: perfect. It's such a great role for Tom Cruise, And, and, and I think it kind of cemented his uh, movie persona to some degree or an element of his film persona. Uh, it's uh it's probably one of the first times he plays a, Like an explicitly unlikable character, he's kind of a prick in this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go ahead. Well, I mean, you're about to say you could make a case that he was unlikable in other films. You could make a case that he, like Maverick, is a bit of a dick. Well, uh, that's what I was gonna.
1: uh, What I was gonna say is that it's almost the dickier version of Maverick. That it's it's in some ways he (laughs) shares a lot of similarities with that character, but. Just a way less likable version,
0: yeah, Maverick is a lot more soulful than this guy uh the, but uh but nonetheless, it works, you know, and he has a very good rapport with uh Mary Elizabeth Mastertonio, who's the third lead in the film, and the movie has a lot of cool little cameos from uh from guys like Iggy Pop, for example yeah that's and, right uh, and uh one of my favorite cameos uh from uh What's his name?
1: Uh, Forrest it. Whitaker?
0: Forrest Whitaker, that's right. Uh, from Forrest Whitaker, uh, he's great in the little scene he has. An absolutely like breakthrough performance for him. So that movie made Forrest Whitaker's career, for what it's worth. Uh, yeah, Color Money's Money is really good. And it was a big hit for Scorsese and allowed him to go ahead and make that last temptation of Christ. He, that last temptation of Christ.
1: That's right. And Last Temptation of Christ, he had to change some of the actors. Uh, Original Aiden Quinn was going to be Jesus, and uh, when it came time for round two, he passed. The other thing, um, the original Last Temptation thing was a borderline, I don't think it was supposed to be a musical, but um, Sting was going to be Pontius Pilate. And uh, the singer Vanity was going to be Mary Magdalene. And uh, I forget, there was some some other musical, another musician was in the role. This time, uh, Willem Dafoe, of course, played Jesus. And uh, he kept the musician for Pontius Pilate, though. This time, David Bowie played Pontius Pilate. Um, but That's The Last right. Temptation of Christ is actually one of my favorite Scorsese movies. It's, uh you know, I don't know about top 5 but certainly top 10. I just think it's a very personal film for him. Uh it has a lot of unique touches. Like there's just I don't know, I just felt like Scorsese put not tricks is the wrong word, but if you watch it it's a very personal film and also doesn't it's unique. It doesn't flow like other movies you've seen, even other like biblical epics and I don't know. I think it's really cool. That's a movie that I always recommend to people if you want to see something kind of interesting. It's certainly Scorsese operating at maybe the artier end of his spectrum. It's less crowd-pleasing, but uh, I like that movie quite a lot. What about What about you, Andre? What do you think of Last Temptation of Christ?
0: yeah I like it as well it's I'm, I'm totally with you it is artsy uh, and it is an interesting take on the Jesus story and it really worked for me it worked for me dramatically it worked for me as a film uh, I think it does exactly what he what he set out to do and uh, and along the way kind of reinvents what a religious epic could be because up to the last temptation of Christ uh, unless you count Jesus Christ superstar the musical version of the Story. Uh, Up to that point, religious epics had a certain, I don't know, portentousness to them. They were kind of heavy handed for the most part. And um, Last Temptation had a different vibe to it. It felt more modern, it felt looser. Uh, And uh, again, it it worked. It was an effective film. Still tons of controversy, uh, still a lot of protests. for you know misrepresenting Jesus as it were but uh but generally the film worked i'm not sure how it did at the box office i i yeah I it,
1: it i mean it, it certainly wasn't a hit or anything uh and it probably got more controversy than it did uh ticket sales but he got to make it. <laughs> it's kind of like everybody's yeah. find that, uh, And he, by all reports, is fairly satisfied with the results. So he's like, I got that off my chest. Also features a fantastic, uh, unique Peter
0: Gabriel score. Yeah, uh, the, the the soundtrack is really cool in the film. Really, really cool. It's, uh, it's an interesting film, and it's worth seeing. And I, don't th- I also don't think it gets seen enough. I think uh, the controversy surrounding it uh, kind of I don't know has left a bad taste in people's mouths about watching that film uh and uh, I think people should watch it I think uh, Christians should watch it I would imagine uh because it's a you know it's a strong it's a strong film uh and uh it was a strong way to kind of end the decade Because his next film, which actually comes out in 90, so we're not really going to talk about it too much, but his next film is Goodfellas. And here, you feel like the entire 80s was just a major palate cleanser for Martin Scorsese to become the Martin Scorsese we all know and love, the director of movies about Italian mobsters. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah I will i you know a little aside you skipped over an important little piece I want to mention is uh the movie New York Stories God. which is an ensemble film uh it's got th- well not an ensemble film, but I mean it's made up of three short films kind of just sandwiched together. uh we haven't had many of those in a while. I know there's been uh four rooms in the nineties, but I feel like it's been a while since we've had the like what's the word I'm looking for it's not it's an, an ensemble, ensemble. An anthology, yes. And so there are three directors who did short pieces of New York stories. Uh, two we've talked about, Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, if you haven't seen that in a while, um, the Scorsese one's the only one I think is pretty strong. Scorsese's story in that is called Life Lessons. It's about a painter, stars Nick Nolte. It's great, Nolte. Uh, that movie also... Heavy, heavy use of the song "Whiter Shade of Pale." So, if for some reason you've hate, you've hated that song, uh, you will hate this movie. <laughs> but, um, but New York Stories is like to me, for my money, Andre. Almost all anthology movies are not good overall. Like everyone I've yeah. ever seen in my life, you're always like, "Well, that one was good, that one was okay, and that part sucked." And uh, that's how this one is as well. The Scorsese part's pretty good the Coppola thing is really kind of lame and boring, and then Woody Allen's piece is right there in the middle. Um, Allen's piece I think is called Oedipus Rex. It's kind of a version mm-hmm. of the uh, an old Jewish mother haunting you. And, um, and Woody Allen's story is one of those, like, it, it's not terrible, but also in the course of Woody Allen's career, it seems like the type of story he could have, you know, farted out one afternoon over lunch. So, not particularly notable. Yeah,
0: yeah. just a to- yeah, just a minor concept that didn't quite fill out the whole film, so he stuck it in this thing. Although for this podcast, Steve, New York Stories is almost like a connecting tissue, you know, because yeah. it's, it really kind of is a crossroads for a lot of these filmmakers. But, uh, but yeah, I, um, New York Stories, like, like yourself, not a giant fan of the anthologies. And, uh, and I have to admit that I've never even seen New York Stories. Uh, but I do, being a huge Nick Nolte fan, as you know, uh, I, I think I, I should. I think I should see at least the Scorsese.
1: Yeah, it's some good Nolte. You know, the
0: Scorsese segment. Yes, yes. And, uh, I love me some good Nolte, you know that. Uh, but, but interesting, that kind of takes us into Coppola to some extent. And Coppola, man, now, now, to me, that guy had the weirdest decade of the 80s don't you think? Like Coppola, his entire, his entire output of the eighties was absolutely based on sentimental fare. I mean, he is in a very sentimental mood for an entire decade. Uh, And I mean, look at the, it's like you got, well, you got one from the heart, which is, which is an artsy, kind of a musical film with frederick Forrest. it's got a great soundtrack uh, by tom waits and um but i can't really recommend much more about that film that that movie doesn't work for me it's like it's clearly very artistically minded it just doesn't work uh and um it's too bad you feel kind of bad because you know coppola is coming off of Apocalypse Now, that's his previous film, and and maybe that's the problem, right? Maybe he's just so burned out that he needed to make something as off the beaten path as one from the heart, just to kind of get the taste of Apocalypse Now out of his uh, out of his mouth, you know, the taste of the jungle. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I mean,
1: Coppola's, you know, I always forget if it's Coppola or Coppola. I guess Coppola, Cop- I'm going to go with Coppola. Okay.
0: Um,
1: Coppola's entire career is very interesting because he made these kind of smaller personal films in the late 60s and he's a little you know he's, he's basically a peer of Scorsese and Spielberg and De Palma but just a couple years older like always seemed to have like a little bit of the big brother relationship that goes especially to George Lucas he was kind of the big brother figure and so he made these kind of smaller personal slightly artier films like The Rain People and stuff so in the 70s, though, Coppola, you know, he only made four movies, but they're all, like, masterpieces. And three of them are these gigantic, huge, sprawling things. Now, Coppola, especially the Godfather movies, were kind of work for hire and that he certainly put a lot of himself into it. And I don't think he's ashamed of these movies or anything. But you always, you always get the sense that there was a part of him that felt like oh, it's almost like if you work really hard on something that means a lot to you and nobody gives a shit about it, and then, like, you get hired to do something and people are like, that was the best thing you've ever done, and you're just like, I don't know, I like, he <laughs> didn't have as much of a personal connection to it. And so Coppola then kind of went back in the 80s to like, well, I am going to do whatever I want to do. Like, I'm not as much uh and uh, I want to make this weird musical, I want to make a couple of movies based off S.E. Hinton novels, and you know, I want to make a movie about this guy who tried to design a car that didn't work, and uh, just a weird idiosyncratic career, and that's kind of been his path ever since. Like, every now and then he gets hired for a more standard Hollywood fare, like a Dracula or a Grisham book, but for the most part, couple has like, flirted in and out with, like, I'm just gonna do whatever the hell I want, I don't care if anybody's interested in it, but then every like, five or so years... I got to do something for some money or, or make wine.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or make wine or, or, or repackage a previous film, which is uh, he's about to do with the Godfather part three, right? Yeah. Uh, So there's a new version of Godfather part three coming out, but you know, the eighties was also the really the last time as decade wide that uh, he, he made a lot of films or, or at least more than a couple so he was still a very active director in the 80s whereas in the 90s it kind of went uh slip pick it yeah, tapered back off back, you know so, yeah yeah big time, big time tapered off and uh and you know and there was just n- nothing fantastic about that stuff either but but boy man that in the 80s that whole like what was what was Coppola's obsession with S.E. Hinton could you explain (laughs) to me I mean he seemed to be living in the world of S.E. Hinton and I don't understand and now talk about sentimental journey like to me S.E. Hinton is uh one of those writers who like she kind of nails the period to somewhat but but I, I just don't by her characters at all. Like, all of it seems like utter fantasy. It seems like a work of a of a schoolgirl who is fantasizing about these bad boys that she sees from far away, who she doesn't actually know real well and doesn't fully understand. And everything about her, like, writing is seems like slightly flights of fantasy. It's it's very idealized, it's not realistic. And somewhere in this, Coppola found inspiration, massive inspiration, enough to do two major motion pictures in, right? Uh, yeah. So outsiders I mean, and Rumblefish.
1: Yeah, and Essie Hinton, it's I mean one of the things she she always gives the characters these ridiculous names. Yeah. And uh, it's not only that they have silly names, but then they have names that the other characters just address each other by all the time. So in Rumblefish, you know, the main character's name is Rusty James, which is a little awkward, doesn't flow off the tongue. And uh, (laughs) not only does no one in the movie call him Russ or RJ or Rusty, they always say the full Rusty James... And they say it all the time. It'd be like if I was talking to you now, Andre. And I said, so, Andre, what do you think about this, Andre? Andre, are you going to say this? Andre, what do you want (laughs) to do for dinner, Andre? Just a lot of, I mean, I heard the name Rusty James over and over and over in the movie. And, of course, the Outsiders, they all have silly names. And it's weird. Pony Boy, right? That's the main character in
0: Outsiders. Pony Boy, I remember that.
1: Like, they kind of, in a way, remind me a lot of um, Twin Peaks. But, like, David Lynch just, but just with complete no awareness you know like (laughs) it's like se hinton made twin peaks but just straightforward and doesn't see any of the jokes or tweaking any of the soap opera elements of it just like straightforward and um yeah like imagine if twin peaks was just a bad soap opera and not anything with like weird lynchian elements to it so i don't know I'm, i'm with you i haven't read those books um i will say i don't I don't know what was going on, what was in the water in the early to mid-80s that uh, not only were there multiple S.E. Hinton movies, but Matt Dillon, in this course of 18 months, you could go watch three different movies based on S.E. Hinton movies starring Matt Dillon playing a different character in every movie. Yep. Uh, Kind of surprising that... At least one of those movies you would think somebody would have said, like the producers would be like, you know what? We just saw Matt Dillon in the same type of movie as a different character. Maybe we should get somebody else. And they're like, nope, got to be Matt Dillon.
0: <laughs> Matt Dillon pretty much owes his entire career to S. E. S.E.H.E.N. Uh, yeah. But but again, I, I have read The Outsiders, and I, I thoroughly hated it. I did not feel it was authentic <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I was not looking forward to the film, but, you know, the movie, but I was at that time already aware of Coppola's reputation as a great American director, and, uh, um, you know, so I saw the film, and, of course, the film has an unbelievable cast. I mean, literally who's who of young actors in Hollywood are in the outsiders. It's, a, it's unbelievable. And the fact that how many of these guys are still working, still stars are, are amazing or went on to be major stars. It's, it's, it's really stunning. But, but the film is, I don't know. It's, it, it's, I find it to be emotionally Less than honest, shall we yeah. say, and uh, and I don't really relate to any of those characters or any of those characters' needs. Uh, so when I saw the movie, I liked it better than I liked the book, which I really disliked. But uh, I didn't like the movie that much either. You know, so um, you know, I think it's worth seeing for the amazing cast, and it's a beautiful film. Of course, it's beautifully shot, but uh, uh, and but you know it's 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 not a major work of art in my opinion and 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 it's a weird period for Coppola just a weird period like why why is he so deeply drenched into this in, in in this world of this particular writer i will say that the movie Rumblefish, which was a bit of a throwaway follow up to the outsiders i like it better because It's more, like, explicitly artsy. It's black and white, and and it has a very, like, minimal narrative to it. To me, I like that a lot more than The Outsiders. Uh, And uh, it kind of works. It's got Mickey Rourke in it as well, and in one of his early roles. And I don't know. Uh, Rumble Fish Fish is okay, in my opinion. Yeah, Rumble Fish is...
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me. He's trying all sorts of things, and in some ways he's trying so much that it almost becomes uh, taking you out of the story, for my like. Like, uh, I remember seeing a film in film school, like a short movie that, you know, a student a few years older than me had made, and our teacher would show it as, like, examples of, like, here's things going on in different depths of field, and here's how you can cut. And parts of Rumblefish, it was funny, almost seemed like this student film. Like, you know, like, okay, like, in this shot, we're going to experiment with rack focus. And in this shot, we're going to experiment with, like, a fisheye lens. You know, like, it just really seemed like Copa was trying, like, just really... I mean, on one hand, he's kind of having fun with it. But on the other hand, it's like that became more the star than the the very simple story. Um, Yeah, it's got... It, it is more interesting. It, it's kind of fun to check out if you've never seen it. It's not like a favorite of mine, but there's stuff going on in there. You get a young Mickey Rourke, uh, who's a lure, I confess, I, I don't get it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he's there. And uh, you also get a nice little um, really drunk Dennis Hopper playing a really drunk person to where you can't quite tell if that's the character or the actor at the time.
0: That's called typecasting, Steve. Like typecast. <laughs> Yeah, but uh but Rumblefish is interesting. What do you think of Cotton Club? Like Cotton Club, hmm? yeah. I'll, I'll tell know. you what I,
1: I'll tell you what I think of it. I think I've never seen it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have seen it. And I remember seeing it when it came out. And I remember there being talk about like, well, finally Uh, Francis Ford Coppola is getting back to his roots of making movies about gangsters that in the thirties, it's going to be kind of like the Godfather and it was nothing like the Godfather. It's was a disappointment. It was underwhelming and uh, it stars Richard Gere. and actually it's got a great cast, but it's obviously it's about the cotton club. It's about sort of the, the drama and romance around that particular establishment in Harlem in the thirties. So it has to, you know, it, it, you'd think it has a lot to say about race at that time. It doesn't. It's uh, it's partially a musical. It's got some interesting things in it and cool sequences, but overall it doesn't work. I tell you, for me, the thing that stood out the most in the cotton club was the first time I saw young Nicolas Cage. He really stood out in that movie for me. I, I remember him very distinctly in that yeah. film. And from that point on, I was always like, hey, it's that weird guy from the Cotton Club. Well, I he's in Rumblefish,
1: too. But I guess, yeah, you probably you saw that
0: in your life later, right? Yes, I saw Rumblefish later. I uh, yeah. the, the the Cotton Club I saw when it came out at the movies. Uh, and so uh, so he kind of popped in that film for me more than anybody else. But again, great cast. Uh, top-notch Hollywood product for sure, you know. Uh, there's a lot of money on that screen. Uh, but overall, mm, it's it's a bit of a failure. The next film he made also stars Nicolas Cage. And that, there you got Nicolas Cage kind of coming into his own as a leading man now. And that, of course, is Peggy Sue Got Married. And that is my favorite Coppola film from, from the decade of the 80s. Yeah. It's certainly the most memorable one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I it sticks in my mind the best. And what's fun about that movie is it's sort of, like, it came out uh when Peggy Sue got married, is 86? Is that, that came out pretty much like a year after or a couple of years after back to the future it has a kind of a oh, similar yeah, it's like, it's like one year
1: like, later yeah yeah i think back to the future was yeah. 85 i think yeah
0: yeah but but like a more serious version of that film sure. you know where peggy sue is the main character and she's a kind of a, a suburban housewife and then she goes back and gets to relive her high school romance with her husband who she no longer loves and she kind of falls in love with him again it's an interesting concept it's uh it's kind of cool it's got good acting in it and uh and i like it i like Peggy Sue got married
1: yeah i mean uh you could almost argue that coppola's biggest contribution in the 80s was just introducing the world to his nephew nicholas cage
0: Yes, it, and that's not bad, man. That's not bad. And in my book, I you know you know I love Nicholas Cage not in everything he does, but I I do I do like him a lot, and uh, and I think that's uh, that's a worthy contribution to cinema, uh, if nothing else. Uh, I will say that both Gardens of Stone and Tucker, uh, starring Jeff Bridges, are both good pictures. Tucker, especially, I like, uh, but Gardens of Stone is also pretty good. Uh, again, good films, not great films and that's really the problem with coppola
1: yeah and that's i mean even tucker i remember seeing it years and years ago and it it feels a little like watching almost like a made for tv movie or something they'd show you in school like this is an interesting little historical tidbit but it's not the same as like this is a great movie
0: yeah i i I haven't seen it in many years but i do remember liking it a lot and and, I mean, you know, I just, I, I think it's just an interesting story. You know, it's an interesting story about this, this guy who has this great idea and then he has to take on the entire automobile industry to make it happen and then, and then they squash him. <laughs> so, it's a, you know, it's a great American story. Uh, so, uh, and I, I really like Jeff Bridges in it as well. I, I think the movie has a lot of cool things going for it. And visually it's very, uh, scrumptious. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, It's beautiful, beautiful to look at, and uh, cinematography is great, and and it's got a great kind of feel for the period. But again, you know, just another movie of Francis Ford Coppola kind of wallowing in the past. Uh, Sentimental claptrap, you could call it. But uh, I wouldn't go that far, but definitely, you know, definitely a very sentimental film, Uh, like every other film he made in the 1980s. So, well, that's, I, that's I mean, all I really got for Coppola, Steve.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he certainly had a falling off in the 80s in terms of quality, but it's also like his 70s run is as strong as anybody's run ever. So, it's kind of hard to imagine yeah. a scenario where he wouldn't have a falling off. It's like I always say about Coppola, like, I I, I never consider him like my favorite director, but... From '72 to '79, he made four masterpieces in a row, and uh, that run is pretty unparalleled. I don't know if anybody else like I, I. There are other directors I know who made four good movies in a row, but the four in a row are not as good as those four.
0: And the the lack, the conspicuous lack of masterpieces from Coppola in the '80s, was telling, and it signaled uh, his tr- career trajectory from then on, because that's definitely been downwards. Now. On the completely other end of the spectrum of career trajectories, Brian De Palma, who I don't think anybody regarded as a genius in the '70s, even though he certainly made some very very good films in the '70s, but generally speaking, when people talked about Brian De Palma, um, they 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 basically thought he was a kind of a pastiche artist. Right? Yeah, he, a, he was obsessed with Hitchcock. He was very highly regarded amongst other filmmakers. But I think in the critical community and, and amongst the audiences as well, he was generally regarded as a second-rate Alfred Hitchcock. And the 80s, he kind of blossomed in the 80s, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's a the guy who came into his own and actually made movies that are maybe not artistic masterpieces per se, but but are certainly massive, like, cultural cultural films, movies that resonate to this very day. Um, And um, he didn't start with those films like he started with a kind of a Hitchcock pastiche called Dressed to Kill with Angie Dickinson and Michael Caine. That's actually a very good film and is an effective thriller, but it's a little silly. (laughs) You know, I, I don't think it holds up over time. But his next film is kind of part Hitchcock, part Antonioni. It's called Blowout. It stars John Travolta and it's, it's really good, Steve. I love Blowout. It's a it's
1: Blowout's awesome. fantastic. Yeah, I I confess I was one of those people who uh, I resisted watching a lot of De Palma for a long time because yeah, to me I I was like that guy's like trash Hitchcock. I don't know. And sometimes they'd show me samples in school and I'm like I don't know if I'm into this split screen thing. And uh, but then recently I've been watching more De Palma movies and a lot of them are really great. And I I saw Blowout. Uh, for the first time, I've seen clips of it. You know, I, they'd showed us the climax before, but uh, I saw the mm-hmm. whole movie. And uh, Blowout's fantastic. And um, and the other thing about De Palma in general, which can sometimes uh, be underrated, especially in discussions like this, is De Palma's a lot of fun. Like, it's <laughs> just a, a lot of, he's uh, very entertaining a lot of the time. So, and, Super um, and. Yeah, so Blowout's got all sorts of interesting sound design and stuff like that and you know it's about a sound recording artist but it's also it just kicks ass. It flows along and uh it's a great time.
0: Agreed. I love Blowout. It's it's definitely one of his best films in the uh, of the decade in terms of quality, but the next film that that the Palma made is Scarface uh, the remake of the Howard Hawks classic from the 30s uh, and this was written by Oliver Stone uh, who was sort of on his way up uh, at the time as a writer uh, and of course it stars Al Pacino. What can you say about Scarface? It is a unabashed classic, right? I mean everybody has seen it, everybody knows it, everybody quotes lines from it uh, I will say that it was not critically well received when it came out, but man it has had a cultural impact uh, that it's almost like short of Star Wars, uh, like, like it, for me it's hard to to imagine a comparable cultural impact from the movie at that, you know, made in that general time frame
1: uh, yeah, I mean I I was too young to see it, you know, at real time in theaters, but so by the time I saw Scarface, like its reputation preceded it. And it is it's one of those movies that's hard to evaluate a film. It's like, you know, well what do you think of the Big Mac as a sandwich? <laughs> you know and you're like why? Well, I, I don't know. It's a Big Mac. It's been a it's just there. And uh so that's Scarface is is, is a little trashy, it's a little hammy in parts, but you know again, the very cultural trashy. very the, hammy. the the cultural impact of it is just undeniable.
0: Yeah, it's undeniable. And I remember a few years ago, Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but we we actually had a podcast uh called, entitled uh, Good Movie Bad Movie. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned Scarface because you could make a case that Scarface is in fact a bad movie. Sure, uh, you could make that case, but I think you'd be crazy to make that case because the entertainment value in Scarface and its impact—it's an impactful movie. It has heart, uh, and. Um, and that way overpowers its accesses, its over-the-top hammy performances, its ridiculous accents, its uh, j- just, just kind of over-the-topness of Scarface. And in fact, you could say that all those elements kind of add to its greatness. So um, yeah, Scarface... Fantastic. I I, I mean,
1: (laughs) Scarface is also like uh, the 80s were the last decade where people were credibly able to play races that they clearly were not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, For all sorts of reasons, you know, we're not going to, that stopped being a thing that was acceptable. So, I mean, just at the heart of Scarface, one of those things that's so obvious that nobody even talks about is the fact that Al Pacino's playing (laughs)
0: Tony Montana. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that, that that was that was sort of part of the thing, and and, and yeah. obviously Al Pacino's accent, you could make fun of it all day long, but you know, but Al Pacino's best friend in the movie is actually played by a Cuban actor, Stephen Bauer, uh, and. Uh, you know so so they kind of make up for it but Pacino's great like I, I I I mean he is gigantic in terms of his hamminess in that film but it works you kind of fall in love with that guy for some reason and I think it would have been very hard to find another actor who could have done that I mean certainly at that time I don't know if you would have found another Hispanic or Cuban actor to do it so Pacino's Pacino's really great and uh I don't know, man. Just, just love it. Everything in that movie, like the colors, the settings, the music—it's just, it works. I can't. I, I must have seen that movie a thousand times. I swear to God, Steve. Every time it's on TV, I can't turn it off. I just—I uh-huh. stop and I watch until it, it's over. And uh, so few movies have that quality. And uh, and the Godfather, the the first two Godfather films from the seventies have that quality to me. Also starring Al Pacino. And, and, and Scarface definitely has that quality as well. And uh, and though De Palma's next movie is Body Double, which actually is an interesting film, and it's another one of those kind of thriller-type movies, and it deals with some interesting concepts. I really I, I recommend Body Double. It's a super 80s movie. It's so 80s, it literally has a Frankie Goes to Hollywood music video right in the middle of the film. I mean, it's in the movie to the point where they would just literally just splice it out of the film and put it right right on MTV and just play it. A chunk of the movie body double on MTV as the music video for Frankie Goes to Hollywood song "Relax."
1: Yeah, well, th- that seems like a good point to do a little aside that some of these guys we mentioned they did start to dabble in the emerging form of music videos. That the '80s, of course, is when right. MTV came out, and uh, you know, De Palma did a couple Springsteen videos. He did the Frankie Goes sure. to Hollywood. Is from the movie uh, Coppola. Sure. I don't think did an actual music video, but he did do the Michael Jackson weird Captain EO project that played at the epcot center and uh scorsese did the video for michael jackson's bad the title song and uh one of the things in cinema history it's kind of notable was on that video um he got friendly with michael jackson's bodyguard big hulking italian american guy who then became one of the guys who uh whacked joe pesci in goodfellas Yes. Uh, Joe Pesci <laughs> gets killed by Michael Jackson's bodyguard and Martin Scorsese's dad. Nice. Very, uh, very nice. So anyway, but yeah, the music videos, uh, the these big directors, they dabbled in a little bit.
0: Absolutely, Especially absolutely. And it, yeah, it was an up and coming art form and it, it just made sense. And of course, you could make a, make make a case that that a lot of the art form that we refer to as the music video, which at this point is kind of a dead art form or certainly a a rare art form, because there's no outlets for it, let's, in all honesty. Because MTV, you could ar- yeah,
1: I mean, you could almost argue it's back to its roots, where yeah. uh, people would occasionally make these promotional videos for songs before MTV, but you know they were fewer and far between because, like, what are you going to do with them?
0: Yeah, you just got to put them on YouTube and hope people find them, but uh uh they go viral as the kids say, but yeah, uh, But yeah, but but uh but De Palma definitely definitely dabbled in the music videos and uh Body Double was definitely kind of the the touchstone of that. But I tell you, De Palma made a movie called Wise Guys Next which was mm, not great and uh not uh uh, didn't make a gigantic splash. I think it was kind of a comedy, uh, a, a uh, an attempt at uh, crime comedies. But the movie that I really love the most out of his whole 80s oeuvre is uh, The Untouchables, which is a remake, uh, or rather a film version of the television show. Uh, but this one stars uh, Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, Robert De Niro as Al Capone, and uh Sean Connery as uh an Irish person. And uh what can I tell you? It's awesome. I love The Untouchables. I, I it grows on me every time I, I watch it. It to me it's a movie that is absolutely De Palma. It it doesn't feel like De Palma is imitating anybody in this film. Uh it seems like De Palma is just being De Palma. And well, to, okay. Well, you you disagree, okay. Well, there's
1: a gigantic imitation in it, which is funny because uh, – so The Untouchables is very formative in my movie-going life. Like, it, it was one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw. Uh, it was early Kevin Costner. It became the hallmark for years of – I mean, to this day, like, 60% of what I know about Al Capone's from that movie. <laughs> and uh, uh, You know, the scene with, like, where Al Capone beats the guy with a baseball bat at the time. Was, sure, like, the, sure. At the time I saw that, that was the most violent thing I'd ever seen in a movie. Um, <laughs> but when you talk about imitation, so one of the things, I remember my parents took me and we saw that movie, and one of the parts that we all thought was really great scene, a really hallmark scene, is the scene in the train station with the baby buggy on the uh, steps. And we're like, yeah, wow, but- that's, a, that's a really cool sequence. And then right. later on, right. you find out that... I mean, it's more than a. It's basically a ripoff of this very famous, the Odessa Step sequence of uh, Eisenstein from a Russian yeah, yeah, filmmaker. From bat, bat, from <laughs> so, uh,
0: I mean, that's Steve. I, I, you're completely right. But if you watch Battleship Potemkin, short of the 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 that thing where the baby carriage is tumbling down the steps. That the Untouchables sequence is completely different. So, so there's an homage to Potemkin in the Untouchables, but I wouldn't call it a rip-off. It's sort of well not a shot by shot remake. It uses that element, uh, but the movie is complete. I mean, the, the scene is completely different, it has a completely different vibe. Well, and, and it, it
1: fits, fits in fits dramatically, it's a, so I yeah.
0: Don't.
1: It's like a dramatic, a very important dramatic part of the movie. I mean, it's integrated sure. perfectly. It works like gangbusters. Oh, I, yeah, it's great. I, I just wanted to raise my hand when you said that <laughs> De Palma's not ripping anyone
0: off in The Untouchables. It's, it's, a, it's a loving homage. It's a loving homage. But, but, but still, you know, the feel of the movie is totally, is totally De Palma to me. I mean, outside of the fact that yes, he's a gigantic film geek and yes, he's been influenced by all of these filmmakers throughout the history of cinema. Probably more so than most other filmmakers ever. Like, it's hard for me to imagine a more kind of explicitly derivative filmmaker than De Palma in certain elements of style that he uses. But to me The Untouchables is... uh, is, is kind of a standalone work of art. It, it sure it references other movies, and sure it is a film version of a TV show, so it references the TV show that it's based on. But it's so good, and the script by David Mamet's fucking fantastic, and um, and of course you hear a chunk of it in our opening montage uh this season so i i i love untouchables it will be on my list of the best best films of the 80s i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give it away right
1: now a little preview yeah it
0: it will be on the list i absolutely love it like with scarface i cannot resist watching it every time it's on uh so um so yeah the palma definitely uh definitely had a great run in the 80s and we're not even done with his uh, his decade.
1: So De Palma capped the 80s with Casualties of War a movie set in Vietnam. Uh, we discuss that a lot in our podcast about Vietnam and I, you know, if if you want to hear more thoughts on Casualties of War, more in-depth thoughts, please by all means check out our uh, that podcast if you haven't already. But uh, the Casualties of War is, um, you know, it's a movie basically uh, it, it's about a single incident more or less and mm-hmm. And really delves into the moral dilemma of that incident. And I thought very effectively. I mean, Casualties of War, the script is not as good as The Untouchables. That, uh, you know, there's a couple speeches in Casualties of War that are a little too on the nose. But overall, I thought the movie was great. And I actually thought De Palma's, like a De Palma director who's known a lot for, uh, making suspense movies, I thought he was the right choice and took the right, approach to this movie about shooting a movie about an ethical dilemma as if it's a suspense movie uh which i thought was great that it really builds up the tension and similar to a horror movie you know you kind of know what's coming i mean like if you went to see that movie there's no surprise about what the main thrust is it's about these soldiers who kidnap a woman uh with the express point of like they kidnap her with the intention of Taking her around to rape her for their own amusement, and uh, you know that going in, so uh, it's like a horror movie. the The horror is bearing down on you from the beginning.
0: It's a powerful film, and uh, it's a good ending of a decade for for Brian De Palma. I, I, I really kind of feel that De Palma is my my favorite uh, in terms of of the auteurs that we're talking about in the in the 1980s. Uh, I think like his highs are the highest, uh, and he has the fewest lows. You know, so if you were to measure his trajectory in the 1980s, I think he wins the context outside of Steven Spielberg, of course. Well,
1: that's yeah. So that's that's the one I thought maybe we'd cap it off with with a little talk of Spielberg, who uh, Spielberg, for my money. Dominated the 80s in every way, um, certainly financially, uh, but also in terms of the quality of the movies he made, and then really just put his imprint on the decade. Um, before we even get to the movies that Spielberg directed, one of the most significant things Spielberg did is in 1981, he, fi- he, uh, he founded his production company called Amblin. It's named after a short film he made years before so him and um, with marshall and kennedy these three people have founded the amblin production company and here are some of the movies that spielberg did not direct but executive producer amblin maybe you've heard of a few of these poltergeist gremlins goonies back to the future young sherlock holmes the money pit harry and the hendersons inner Space, amazing stories Batteries Not Included, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Land Before Time. I mean,
0: it's... Yeah, uh, and there were others he didn't even put his name on. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, talk about a license to print money. Um, yeah. Spielberg had his finger on what audiences wanted to see in the 80s. but And then, you know, in some of our other pods, we've already discussed a lot of these movies he did. I mean, he kicked it off in 1981 with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which...
0: Uh, I mean, that's great. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a good start. Just, right, right. It's a good good way to start the decade. But, but yeah, Spielberg was, of course, it, it's a whole other thing with Spielberg. It's a whole other thing. Spielberg takes it uh, out of the realm of art and into the realm of big-time commerce. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I think he's kind of frowned upon for that reason in many circles. But, man, his movies are good. And they were good. And they were good even when he wasn't directing them. They were good. Like even just by, by by his very presence as a producer, these movies somehow rose to the next level. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of success, there's nobody to. Well,
1: that's touch. the thing. It's like even some of these movies like Goonies and Back to the Future, like, you know, it's debatable how much Spielberg did on those movies he might have just been his name was executive producer which means his company provided the money but they just feel like spielberg movies i know i have relatives who just kind of assume goonies is like a movie spielberg directed it just has that feel Mm -hmm. and uh that's that's the imprint he had so but in the decade you know we've talked in other podcasts about he did the three indiana jones movies and of course et which at the time was literally the biggest hit of all time I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> but ET is also a great movie and um I will say about ET we discussed this a little bit on the sci-fi pod but you know I've shown that to both of my kids and uh it works like a charm like uh the, it's not too dated for them just all the magic that I felt as a kid when I saw ET it was just completely recreated for my kids when they saw ET. They loved it. I know you're not as big a fan of ET,
0: but you're just trying to trigger me into another ET argument. That's right. it's <laughs> not going to work, buddy. I'm not I'm not going to get caught up in that. We we may have to do a whole other episode where we argue about our feelings about ET. Yeah. But uh, but I'm not going to argue with you about Steven Spielberg's uh, absolute dominance of cinema in the 1980s. That well, the one I un-
1: the one 80s movie of his that I hadn't seen since I was a kid that I wanted to check out again uh, was Empire of the Sun, which uh, is really fantastic. My parents took yeah, me to right. see it, probably just uh, based Absolutely. on the Spielberg excellent name. Film. And uh, yeah, and when I saw it, I was too young to really get it. But uh, it's an excellent movie. It's gorgeous. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's really. Um, you know, one of the things about Spielberg, people always talk about him, is the great showman. You know, like, he's a lot of uh, the classic thing of show, don't tell. He does that a lot in his movies. And Empire of the Sun has a very understated script. They don't spell everything out for you. There's a lot of ambiguity in this movie. It's all seen through the eyes of the the young kid and... Basically, there's stuff in the movie that comes across as kind of mysterious. It's kind of framed in a way of if the kid doesn't fully understand what's going on, then the movie is not going to go out of its way to spell it out for you. And uh, I just found it really effective. It's also uh, for anybody, you know, everybody knows who John Malkovich is now. He's almost a cliche at this point, but you get <laughs> young, young, charming Malkovich who uh, has gives – I mean, basically, like a swashbuckling Harrison Ford type performance in this movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. He's usually awesome, but but he's definitely a kind of different, different type type of character than we use from him. Uh, much less creepy than we normally get from John Malkovich, <laughs> which is nice.
1: Well, I mean, he. I mean, these days the problem with Malkovich, and you know, I, no disrespect to guys. Chicago guy, came up through the theater, obviously a great actor. But these days, everyone's so enamored with all of his little tics that it's hard for him to just play, like, a a person. You know, like, every time you see right. him now, it almost feels like he's basically playing John Malkovich. Like, that's the role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of refreshing that in this, he's just... He's an actor playing a part, and it's great. <laughs> You're Like, oh, I can totally see how... You know, if you saw Malkovich on the Steppenwolf stage in the early 80s, you might be like, oh, who's that guy? That guy's fantastic.
0: He really is. And Empire of the Sun is an excellent film. Uh, Definitely worth checking out for people who may have missed it uh, or uh, may have missed it over the years, may have gotten lost in the Spielberg Spielberg oeuvre.
1: But that's what I'm – so, like, apart from the – obviously box office dominance. But when you add up Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Temple of Dune, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, that's, I think I got to hand it to Mr. Spielberg for uh, my champ of the decade.
0: Winning the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to argue with that, Steve. Hard to argue with this. You know, there's a lot of great filmmakers did a lot of great work in the 80s. Again, underlining our thesis that the 80s was actually an excellent decade for film. The
1: heroes of the 70s continue to do, you know, maybe mixed work, but certainly pretty strong work
0: in the 80s. A lot of strong work and uh, a lot of stuff that's worth seeing. Absolutely.
1: All right. Well, until next time, we'll have some more for you next week as we continue our discussion of the 80s. And uh, until next week, I'm Steve Askin.
0: I'm Andre Shane. We'll see you next time. It's um.